In this episode, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past can we find in our present. I'm Rod Rodriguez, and I'll be your guide for this very special live recording of American Hysteria, hosted by Chelsea Weber-Smith. So who is the voice that you're hearing now? Obviously, not Chelsea, but you might be surprised to know that you and I have met before, several times in fact. I've been here since the beginning, creating the sounds, mixing the music, and even adding some hidden audio signatures, perhaps in hopes of creating my own American hysteria. This episode, as you can already tell, is going to be a little different. What you're about to hear is the first American Hysteria Live, recorded on June 27th, 2019, in Seattle, Washington. Although the attendees were not subjected to consciousness-altering compounds that would lead them into the throes of a violent Illuminati-inspired riot, they were thoroughly entertained by a vaudevillian-esque show complete with a grand entrance by Chelsea serving coke and pop rocks to the daring crowd, a drag performance put on by none other than Tinky Winky, a demonstration of the prohibited dances of the 1920s, and a special appearance by a certain shirt-ripping Alex Jones. Well, he certainly looked like Alex Jones, anyhow. But now you too can bear witness to the first of hopefully many American Hysteria Lives by heading over to our social media to see it all for yourself. We did it all for the gram at American Hysteria Podcast, the book of faces at facebook.com slash American Hysteria Podcast, and our Twitter game is on point, of course, at Amer Hysteria, that's A-M-E-R Hysteria, or you can just stalk, I mean, follow Chelsea on Instagram at Chelsea Weber Smith. Of course, you didn't write any of that down. Who does? So all of those links will be in the show notes. Interested in seeing our live variety hour in your town? We want to know about it. So send us an email to American Hysteria Podcast at gmail.com. And now without further ado, my interpretation of the audio recorded at American Hysteria Live. Enjoy. urban legends and conspiracy theories, how they shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria's Live Variety Hour. Thank you so much for coming tonight. This is an experiment for us. All right. people here have listened to the show before? Very nice. How many people have never listened to the show before? All right, that's great. Don't worry. I have tailor-made this so that you do not have to know anything before coming in, but I will tell you this is an extremely abridged version of our podcast, so if you like what you hear tonight, make sure you listen, and you'll get a lot more. So, all right. 
fair warning tonight, if you've listened to American Hysteria, if you've lived in America, um, you know that things here range from hilarious to horrifying to fucked up and sometimes kind of heartfelt. So we're here to give you what you can't get on our podcast. We're here to test this out tonight and see what it looks like when American Hysteria gives you things to look at rather than just to listen to. Um, if you guys have listened to the show, uh, if you haven't, you'll find this out about me. I uh, was once a 2012-er. I once believed in the end of the world. I once believed in the Illuminati. I once believed in satanic crimes of the rich and powerful um, and all kinds of bizarre stuff that I do not believe in anymore. Uh, but don't expect me to be up here like debunking and like yelling science at you because I am slowly morphing into what I call a flexible skeptic. I am not, uh, I am not immune to the wild things that we believe here in America. So through doing the show, I myself have gotten just this bigger picture sort of a why we fear the wrong things and it keeps surprising me. Um, it often acts, these sensational stories that we tell, they often act as these shiny sort of sensationalized slice of hand and they direct our attention away from our real complicated problems, it makes it so we don't have to pay attention to the things that really matter. And I'm gonna explain more about that and it'll make more sense. So I wanna start tonight with an irrational fear that I'm almost positive that all of you have experienced, especially in your childhood, especially if you grew up in the 80s and 90s. And uh, let's just take a look at this PSA that might be familiar to some of you. Uh, that's Jenny. That's not Jenny's dad. If she gets into that car, you may be looking at Jenny for the last time. I'm McGruff, the crime dog. Let me show you something. See that playground? A lot of kids there. Every day in this country, 60 kids disappear. Some run away on a lot of kidnapped by strangers or even by people they know. Almost 20,000 kids a year. 20,000 kids. Lies. One kid at a time. Maybe your kid. I'm your street. Just like Jenny. Hey, nice going, Jenny. She's going to tell her folks about this. And you can write them a rock. We've got one more PSA coming up after this one. Uh, you guys remember McGruff, right? All right, here's one more. This is my favorite. Dressing up in uniforms, but there are other traps you need to know about. Hi, I lost my little dog. Can you help me find him? Be suspicious of an adult asking for help. Hi, I was just playing with my daughter's video game, but the battery seems to be dead. Stay away from people in cars or vans. Uh, you know we're making a movie over there, you want to see it? Only professional agencies hire kids for TV work. I gotta know. Again, let's go to the arcade and play some video games. What do you say? Ignore him and walk away. What do you say? Good boy, I'll give you ten dollars if you'll take my bag to the car for me. It's okay. She's just looking for help. That's just a woman looking for help. Hey kid, I'll teach you how to hit this ball right over the fence. Come on, it'll be fun. Trust your own feelings. This is my favorite. Your mom's been hurt. She's in the hospital. She sent me to come and get you. What's the secret code word? I don't know the code word. You don't need to get near the car to talk to someone inside. 
forward, Jenny. <laughs> you look like you could use a friend. Say no to what you think is wrong. Hi, I'm sure a cute kid. You know, I'm a professional photographer. Why don't you come on, hop in the car, I'll take your picture. If someone wants to take your picture, say Classic. no. Tell your parents. Don't tell anybody about our little secret. I'll kill your dog. All right. <laughs> so, <clears throat> did anybody remember the vibe of Stranger Danger? Who remembers being taught that strangers were going to kidnap and murder you? Certainly, no matter what. Right. So, um, okay. So, I kind of want to take Stranger Danger and explain something to everyone. So, I know that most of you probably know what an urban legend is. You probably know what a conspiracy is. But we talk about this other concept a lot on American Hysteria, and that's called a moral panic. And I think it's this like very, very valuable theory in sociology that we don't talk about nearly enough. And Stranger Danger is a great example of this cultural phenomenon because what it does is it, it tends to freak out a portion of society about a moral issue. But there's a kind of a caveat to that. The moral issue has to either be completely overblown or maybe even completely made up. Um, this amazing podcast called In the Dark, Anybody ever listened to In the Dark? If you haven't, you should. Um, it's the thing that kind of first made me aware of how disproportionate our reaction is to these evil kidnapping strangers that apparently are everywhere all around us all the time. Um, and this panic over strangers is actually less based in the statistical reality of strangers kidnapping kids at a high rate, and it's actually much more about this series of true crime stories. And these stories stretch all the way back to the 1800s, to where kind of our modern idea of stranger danger started, with this little blonde boy named Charlie Ross, who was actually stolen by a man wearing creepy glasses and a mustache who offered him candy from a buggy. This is where we get the phrase, don't take candy from strangers. It's an old one. Charlie Ross was never, ever seen again, but the news of his disappearance reached all corners of the nation. More than 100 years later in the 1980s, we get this like another jump on Stranger Danger that kind of turned it into what we all know. Um, several highly televised kidnappings that I bet some people here remember, um, people, kids like Adam Walsh, who was the son of John Walsh, who'd go on to make America's Most Wanted. That was an incredibly tragic story that America kind of learned along with this, this uh, case that was going on. And then there was Jacob Wetterling and Johnny Gosh and these boys that were all taken in the late 70s and 80s. They were all the kids on the milk cartons, which I know that everybody's heard of. And um, so kids were waking up in the morning, eating their cereal and staring at missing kids on their milk cartons. And I think that that had to have done a little something to our our psychology. Um, there was a national campaign of educating children about this horrifying reality of these pedophiles who were coming out of the woodwork to kidnap them. And this kind of, it kind of started this idea that we had to be afraid of the other starting very young. Um, so stranger danger, I want to know, does it surprise people here? I know you've listened to the podcast, so it might not surprise you, but would it surprise you to learn that actually only 150 kids are taken and killed each year by people they've never met. And that would mean by one author's statistical estima estimation, and I think this is the best way to think about it, if you were to just like dump your kid off on the street, <laughs> on a street corner, it would actually take 750,000 years before anybody kidnapped them. That is the statistical likelihood of a stranger taking a kid. Now, none of that's to say that these crimes aren't extremely 
extremely horrific and tragic and they need to be prevented, but that's not the issue that I'm talking about. It's really great to teach kids about being careful with new people, about what's appropriate and safe behavior, but what happens when statistically American kids are actually safer with strangers than their own parents? I know, <laughs> thank you for that <laughs> dramatic reaction. Um, this is where the moral panic part comes in. Almost all crimes committed against children are perpetuated by family members or people really close to the child. In other words, people the child already knows, not strangers. But the thing is, is that's like this really complicated and horrific and difficult thing for people to have to face, and even more so to like take practical steps to deal with. And so moral panics, they give us this like, this psychic dumping ground for all of our anxieties. If we fear this evil stranger, if we focus our attention over here, then we don't have to do the hard work of seeking accountability in our very close communities, which is a very scary thing to do. So sociologist Stanley Cohen is the one responsible for this idea of the moral panic. And also he has a name for those that society blames for whatever problem is at hand. And he called them our folk devils. And we'll talk about this again. So in this case, the folk devil has become this ambiguous stranger, this like, it could be anyone. Anyone could be a stranger. You know, it could be a woman asking for, uh, <laughs> asking for batteries, and it could be an old woman trying to get groceries taken to her car. They're definitely going to kidnap and murder you. Um, so that's fine. When, it's, when the folk devil is this could be any one thing, that's, that's one thing. But stranger danger goes back farther than Charlie Ross. When the Puritans landed in the east and slowly started to seep west, um, they, of course, encountered a bunch of different indigenous tribes. And back then, the tallest tales of the Wild West, like the most popular stories that were told, were of white babies being snatched by Indians. And so this idea of the stranger, of the kidnapping indigenous person, was used as this serious justification for violence and oppression that was continuously pushed on indigenous communities to this day. And I just feel like... <laughs> That's an important distinction. When you have a stranger, that's an ambiguous thing, but when you have a specific type of person, we're gonna see how that happens and how that unfolds. 150 kids are taken and killed each year by people they've never met. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your 
schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's a longer history to our nervousness around candy. And it has this history of seeming to kind of both seduce and scare us. Since being mass-produced in the late 1800s, it was met with this kind of religious rejection, especially by one man, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the inventor of cornflakes, who originally created the cereal without a trace of sugar. But why? He claimed that candy was incredibly dangerous and had to be avoided, especially by the youth, at all costs. But why again? He believed that candy was linked to sex and that kids and adults alike were being seduced into sin by something called hyperpalatability or maximum deliciousness. <laughs> Combinations of sugar, fat, and salt created by the first mega candy companies. Now, it's true that hyperpalatability affects the same brain receptors as drugs and sex, and so, in some ways, the good doctor, as he was sometimes known, was actually onto something. It's true that both middle and lower class kids alike were spending their religious Sundays salivating at the windows of bright candy shops, sometimes chomping on a bubblegum cigar, the way we used to smoke candy cigarettes. What? <laughs> Why did we smoke candy cigarettes? I thought about this today, and I just was like, that... That was baffling, but I felt like the coolest person in the world when I was smoking one of those. Oh, cigarettes are cool. Um, anyway, I, I did want to invite Dr. Kellogg here to read to us from his book about some of these theories. Here's Dr. Kellogg. Thank you, thank you for joining me, doctor. Thank you for joining me. Um, hi, doctor. Could, could you read? Could you? Could you read? Now, Doctor, could you please read from us a little of your book and try to explain what it is about candy that's just got you so mad? I'd be happy to. The use of sweetmeats has an undoubted influence on the sexual nature of boys, stimulating those organs into too early activity and occasioning temptations to sin. <laughs> which otherwise would not occur. They are not wholesome for either old or young, but for the young, they are absolutely dangerous. Right under the eyes of fathers and mothers, they work the ruin of their children, exciting such storms of passion as are absolutely uncontrollable. 
Okay, Dr. Kellogg, so what you're saying is that candy- What's a bright boy? Kind, affectionate, active, intelligent, the pride of a loving mother, and the hope of a doting father. His mind had sunken to driveling idiocy. His vacant stare and expressionless countenance betokened almost complete imbecility. Okay, all right, doctor, but don't you think you're being like a little dramatic? Only with the utmost difficulty could he be made to rise in the morning to eat, drink, or walk. Only by great efforts could he be aroused from his lethargy sufficiently to answer the most simple question. The distinguishing characteristics of a human being were (laughs) almost wholly obliterated, leaving but a physical semblance of humanity and a mind completely wrecked. A body undergoing dissolution while yet alive. A blasted life. No hope for this world. No prospect for the next. Yes, yes. Okay, doctor. Thank you. We appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. As funny as that idiot may be, as funny as so many idiots may be, (laughs) uh, like others, Kellogg's policies did have horrific, horrific consequences for the vulnerable. See, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to make you laugh, and then I'm going to say just something just horrible to you. And that's what American Hysteria is. And then I'll do something funny again. So... Not only did Kellogg condone actual genital mutilation of both boys and girls caught masturbating, but he carried out many of these surgeries himself. In season two, we get into Kellogg's day spa for the rich, where it was recommended that one receive not one, not two, not three, not four, but five enemas a day. He and Kellogg hated sex so much that he never even once had sex with his wife. This dude was hella twisted. (laughs) Yeah, learn more about that on season two. the power of Satan, right? That, that's not what they're doing. They're not bolstering their power. They're just going out there to do something that looks very suspicious. But as fun as the Illuminati is, I'm about to, again, do that thing I told you about. So it's fun to joke about reptilian aliens. It's fun to talk about whether celebrities like Beyonce and Lady, Lady Gaga are blood drinking, baby sacrificing, go worshiping Satanists, controlling America's collective mind. That's all really fun. I get it. But there's also a 
very dark side of these stories, one that's been passed down through us through the years, a story made to scapegoat Jewish people as evil, powerful, dangerous, and plotting to take control of the country, the world, our religion, our money, our lives, everything. So the moment that I stopped believing the Illuminati was a moment when I was talking to somebody, I don't, I don't remember who, somebody I was talking to about the Illuminati and we were, we were all lit up and we were going back and forth. And we were like, Can you believe this? Can you believe this? Have you heard about this? And then the person said to me, yeah, and when you get deep enough, it's the Jews that control everything. And it was that aha moment for me. Um, it was that moment where I said, oh shit, <laughs> like what have I been doing? And I don't know if any of you have had that experience, but um, the Illuminati's, okay, here's the real story of the Illuminati. It's kind of boring. In 1776, there was a Bavarian law professor named Adam Weishup. He formed this group called the Order of Illuminists. He couldn't afford the member's fee for the Freemasons, so he just made his own basic version of the Freemasons um, with the hope of freeing all societies from established religion, religious and political authority, which of course terrifies a lot of people. That's what they call globalism. So, <laughs> That's all the Illuminati really was. It disbanded because it couldn't afford to keep running a few years later. But rumors about this secret organization eventually fused with this, I guess I'll call it a creative project. And what this was, it was called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And it's basically a play. It's these fictional minutes from a secret meeting. And it was taken literally by anti-Semites as proof that there was a secret faction of Jews trying to control the world, but all it was was a play that they decided to take seriously. So that seems like it could be pretty innocuous, but the thing is, is that the protocols made their way over to the United States when Henry Ford, the Henry Ford, printed 500,000 copies in 1920 and spread it through his very anti-Semitic press. You know who got their hands on a copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and used it in his early speeches, inspired as he was, with a full-size portrait of Henry Ford beside his desk? Somebody said it. Hitler. That's right, fucking Hitler. So the Protocols, in addition to helping justify the Nazi crimes that were happening because I, Jesus, okay. The protocols were, I just sometimes I just can't even do this, you guys. I get so tired. Um, the protocols of the elders of Zion were also used to justify these militia crimes that happened in the 90s. And one of the worst being the domestic terrorist attack, the Oklahoma bombing that I'm sure a lot of you remembered. Timothy McVeigh was an Illuminati conspiracy theorist. He went to gun shows, he picked up tracks, he learned about the Jewish problem. And though it wasn't necessarily that he made the attack based on that, he was bolstered by the idea that he was a hero in this story. So the same theories that I've just talked about have also kind of come back again in the shootings like the one at the Tree of Life Synagogue and the one in Poway in San Diego that targeted Jewish worshipers. The Illuminati theory, instead of attacking the rich as it did when I knew it in Occupy, it slanted back toward the anti-Semitism from which it came. Not only that, but when we focus on these satanic, child-molesting, super reptile demons, the story gets more interesting, but it also gets simpler. Good and evil lines are drawn. Heroes and villains are parsed out, and you can guess who gets to be the hero and who gets to be the villain. And because the problem becomes singular, 
It makes it easier. If we could just take down the Illuminati, everything would be fine. Well, of course, our politics are a series of complicated and broken systems, many of which were put into place by rich white dudes doing frat boy bullshit in the woods, sans any satanic power. All right. week here and so I wanted to spend a little extra time on gay stuff um, and in case you can't tell by experiencing me um, I'm very very queer I use they pronouns I'm genderqueer I'm just a big big old homo and uh, I talked a lot about my experience growing up uh, in our episode called the gay agenda and I talked about the experience that I'm sure some of you share and that a lot of queer people shared growing up sort of lonely and having absolutely no cultural guidance and just being a baby gay out there in the world with basically nothing to hold on to, no idea how to figure yourself out. So in 2019, I see queer relationships represented all the time in TV and movies. Not enough, of course, but I mean, compare 20, 2004 to 2019, and goddamn, we only, we only had the L word. Do you, straight people don't actually know what that means, but we only had the L word, which is coming back, Generation Q. Are we happy? <laughs> okay, that's good. I like that. I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, so when, when, just to demonstrate how very lonely and very unguided I was, when A Shot at Love with Tila Tequila came out, the bisexual reality TV show, I cried. I cried. <laughs> I was 18 years old and I got to see at least some semblance of queerness on TV, even if it was Tila Tequila, God bless her conspiracy theory, love and heart. If you guys ever wanna do a deep dive into someone who believes in the Illuminati, Tila Tequila is your girl. So anyway, I had, we had, there was a gay person on Roseanne. I'm gonna give her that, <clears throat> sorry. Um, there was Ellen, there was Carol and Susan from Friends, but uh, I just never quite related to Carol and Susan from Friends. Um, there was Queer as Folk, but I didn't have HBO and I was a teenager. Um, but probably the best guidance about being gay came from Will and Grace. But not from Will or Jack, from Karen. Uh, Megan Mullally is a true icon. Uh, for kids, though, there was absolutely nothing. There was no guidepost to help us understand why we felt so different, which many of us did from a really young age. And maybe some of you have heard the news out of PBS that the reboot of Arthur, the kids' cartoon that a lot of us grew up watching, a great cartoon, for their reboot episode had Mr. Ratburn, who, oh my God, of course he's gay. They had him get gay married. And I just think that that was the sweetest thing in the world. And. Um, the episode was banned in some southern states by their state broadcasting systems. That did happen, especially in Alabama, the best state in the union. Um, sorry, sorry, I, I don't want to talk shit. Um, anyway, <laughs> regardless of the small outcry that came after uh, Mr. Ratburn's gay wedding, it's clear that things are getting better. Um, shows like Steven Universe regularly featured queer characters, and lots of other cartoons do too. But there was something a little bit different than happened when I was a kid. And I'm sure some of you remember in the late 90s when 
televangelist Jerry Falwell started talking all about Tinky Winky, the British of the British import children's show, Teletubbies. He accused that adorable alien character of being a gay indoctrinating force for children. But he didn't come up with that idea himself. It was actually gay gossip columnists that noted the purple color, the upside down triangle on his head, and the fact that he was referred to with he pronouns while sporting a tutu and patent red leather purse. Now, why anyone, why anyone would accuse Kinky Winky of being gay, I, I can't imagine. Tinky Winky was wearing a skirt, ready to do a special round and round dance. <laughs> 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 round and dance. <laughs> and the gayest part of all, here it comes. adorable little tinky winky it's gay as hell okay <clears throat> so it was the fact that gays had claimed tinky winky as a mascot that led Falwell and others to panic over the possibility that the gay agenda was purposefully hypnotizing kids into gayness through PBS and also through inclusive local school education and plans of course and education plans and of course through popular culture now, all of this was due to this story that early conservative Christians created throughout the 1970s about, again, an elite secret society, but this time of queers, basically trying to turn everyone gay, everyone in Hollywood and the government, just create a big gay Illuminati. Can we please have a big gay Illuminati? <laughs> But there were real problems, especially during the Lavender Scare, which was a lesser known but really damaging purging of suspected homosexuals from government offices and schools that happened during the Red Scare of the Cold War. Actually, more homosexuals were outed than suspected communists. So the story that these evil homo the story said that evil homosexuals targeted most of all the children, of course, the impressionable next generation that many fundamentalists believed could be turned gay just by the mere mention of homosexuality, just by knowing it exists, which I really like because it's like, it is that appealing, right? Just like, it's just like you hear gay and you're just like, <laughs> I know it exists and I'm ready. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> get a little personal now. We've laughed at some dumb shit. We've talked about some really serious stuff. And here at the end of our show, at the end of the world, I want to get more personal, like I said. Because despite the research, despite the fun and the horror and the moments I wake up screaming at 4 a.m. and all the ridiculous stuff that is just constantly inside my brain, the stuff is also in my heart. 
And it's in my heart because I love the strange, but it's in my heart too because it helps me understand. It helps me stop in the middle of all of this chaos and just pause, just pause and realize that we are in a moment, a cultural moment that has been built on other moments, carrying the past's residue within it forever. At the close of this show, I'm still feeling very lost at the same foot of the ocean, and I'm not sure what any of this actually means. But at the very heart of everything, I still love this place. I still love America, as gross of a sentence as that is to say. I still want to hope that we are moving towards something better, that we're working towards something better, despite everything that's come before and everything that we're engulfed in right now. I'm reminded of dear poet Rainier Maria Rilke, who in letters to a young poet wrote about how our stories and traditions and assumptions are sealed and then passed on through the generations like a letter unopened, a letter unexamined. It's only in opening that letter that we can start to understand how we got here, how this very moment we are all standing in was formed, how everything has layered over time to produce the conditions of our lives and the lives of all the other vastly different kinds of people that make up this country. In knowing and understanding our history, in facing our past honestly and critically, we might begin to have a little more control over our present and future, we might be able to steer this ship with a little more consciousness. We might be able to make new and different choices. I hope this show has helped you begin to open that letter for yourself. And I hope that if you haven't, you'll listen to the podcast as a whole. I want to finish out with this thought of Rilke's, who, like so many poets before him, believed in the challenging, beautiful, and vital practice of love that in so many ways is the opposite of the damaging fear that American hysteria continues to address. Quote, the demands that the difficult work of love places upon our development are larger than life, and we as beginners are not up to them. But if we endure and assume this love as a burdensome task and as an apprenticeship, rather than lose ourselves in all those facile and frivolous games behind which men have hidden from the utmost seriousness of their existence, then it might be possible for those who come after to sense a little progress and relief. That would already be much. This was American Hysteria Live. I was your audio guide, Rod Rodriguez. The show was produced and starring Aaron McCarthy, Lily Ori, and Will Rogers. Assistant produced by Riley Smith, hosted by Chelsea Weppersmith. Edited by ClearCommo Studios, live filming by Stephen Annenson. Remember to check out our amazing sponsors and to see the live show for yourself, head on over to our social media. We hope you enjoyed the show and Chelsea will return in the next episode to share some more bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking. This was American Hysteria Live.